0: It's August the 17th, 1849, in Bermondsey, South London. Down a dusty street of closely packed houses, two men search for a particular address. Despite it being a hot summer's day, they're both wearing thick, dark blue coats, causing them to sweat profusely. But neither will remove their uncomfortable uniforms in public, because these are officers of the new Metropolitan Police Force formed just 20 years earlier by the then Home Secretary Sir Robert Peel. Nicknamed the Peelers, such uniformed men have become a regular sight on the city streets, frightening many Londoners while reassuring others. These two Peelers, Barnes and Burton, have come to three min of a place to search for a man named Patrick O'Connor. O'Connor is a 50-year-old Irishman reported missing by his co-workers at a nearby dockyard five days ago. But when the police visit his lodgings, they found no sign of him. However, his home had clearly been ransacked. Suspecting that O'Connor might have fallen prey to a violent robbery, the police are treating the matter with the utmost seriousness. Having already interviewed a number of his friends and neighbours, the police have discovered an interesting lead as to where he might have gone. Before disappearing, O'Connor mentioned to one friend that he had been invited to dinner on the 9th of August in Bermondsey. His hosts were Frederick and Maria Manning, a young married couple. That was the last time anyone spoke to him. And so these officers have been sent to three men of a place to speak to the Mannings. After knocking on both the front and the back door, the officers received no response. The curtains are drawn and it doesn't appear as if anyone is home. As they search the garden, Burton remarks that he hates the stink of this vicinity. Bermans's economy is dominated by the leather trade, and because urine is used in the tanning process, a deeply unpleasant stench from the local tanneries hangs constantly in the air. He does nothing to improve the disposition of these sweltering officers. In a strong voice, Barnes calls up to the high windows of the house. Mr. Frederick Manning, he shouts. Mrs. Maria Manning, this is police business. Open up. Again, no response. Barnes nods at his companion. Having forced entry into the Mannings' home, the two peelers quickly ascertain that the property is deserted. Not only are the Mannings missing, but so is most of their furniture. It seems that the couple have fled their home, having presumably sold their furniture for funds. The officers perform a quick search of the vacated dwelling. Trapesing around in his hobnail boots, Barnes notices that a flagstone is loose in the kitchen floor. He reaches down and tries to pull at it, but it won't yield. Then he detects an unpleasant odour emanating from underneath one he thinks he recognizes. It smells like quicklime, which he uses in his own garden to kill slugs. He would have detected it earlier had it not been for the overwhelming smell of the nearby tanneries. With his pocket knife, Burton proceeds to loosen the mortar around the flagstone. Then, borrowing a crowbar and shovel from a neighbor, the peelers finally remove their heavy coats and heave up the stone. Underneath the kitchen floor, a human toe sticks out from the soft earth. Digging down further, they uncover the rest of a body, a battered and bloodied corpse decomposing within the quicklime. After further excavation, the officers discover that the back of the corpse's head has been beaten with a blunt instrument, and his hands are bound tightly behind his back. The quicklime, as well as the disfiguring violence, make identification difficult. But Barnes remembers being told something particular about O'Connor. He has false teeth. Reaching a gloved hand down into the shallow grave, he feels for the mouth. Sure enough, this corpse is wearing dentures. And so, this missing person case has just officially transformed into a murder investigation. I'm John Hopkins and welcome to Scotland Yard Confidential. The show where we delve into the files of London's legendary criminal investigation department. You'll be right there alongside investigators as they search for clues, interrogate suspects and sort the truth from the lies. There will be twists and turns along the way. Sometimes the trail will run cold. Sometimes it will be a race against time. We'll rub shoulders with notorious gangsters sit down with informants and come face to face with cold-blooded murderers, as we follow in the footsteps of some of the greatest detectives in history. The discovery of Patrick O'Connor's body underneath Three Miniver Place begins one of the most infamous murder investigations in Scotland Yard's history. The senior officer placed in charge of catching O'Connor's killers is Superintendent Haynes of Southwark's M Division. And the first person Haynes wishes to speak to when he arrives at the crime scene later that day is the surgeon carrying out the post-mortem. On entering the room, Even a seasoned detective like Haynes cannot help but be sickened by the sight of the decomposed corpse laid out on the kitchen table. By now, the cords binding O'Connor's hands have been cut loose. Although there are a great many wounds on the back of the head, the surgeon indicates a specific hole made by a small bullet. The bullet itself now rests on a tin plate close to O'Connor's false teeth. The surgeon explains that the bullet must have been fired at close range to have entered the skull as deeply as it did. Haynes leaves Miniver Place soon afterwards, determined to catch the missing Mannings as swiftly as possible. Immediately, he arranges for a public appeal to catch the fugitive couple. A full description of both the crime and the suspects is given to newspaper journalists, who seize upon the story with ghoulish enthusiasm. They dub the murder the Bermondsey horror. At the local police station, Haynes speaks to the two peelers who were searching for O'Connor and found his body. He insists on hearing everything they've already learnt about the victim. Constable Barnes informs him that although Patrick O'Connor worked as a customs duty collector in a local dockyard, he was no ordinary docker. For one thing, he was a surprisingly affluent man. Through shrewd investments, O'Connor had accumulated a considerable fortune in railway stocks and shares worth nearly £20,000. His landlady had informed the police that O'Connor kept the certificates for these stocks in a cash box inside his home at 21 Greenwood Street, Mile End. However, when the police searched that address, the stocks were nowhere to be found. So, Haynes surmises, The theft of these valuable papers are an obvious motive for murder. But how did you find him underneath the floor of a Bermondsey kitchen? Consulting his notebook, Constable Burton then explains to the superintendent what had led them to three men of a place. According to his landlady, a Mrs. Anne Harms, O'Connor often received a pretty young visitor to his home in the months before he disappeared. This dark-haired woman had been introduced to the landlady as Mrs. Marie Manning and she had a distinct foreign accent. But despite being married to another man, she and O'Connor seemed overly familiar with one another. Barely concealing her disapproval, the landlady had explained, in a highly insinuating tone, how she had witnessed Mrs. Manning disappearing into O'Connor's private lodgings for hours at a time. The landlady told the officers that she couldn't help but eavesdrop on certain conversations as she passed by his door. Just days before he went missing, she'd overheard O'Connor boasting to Marie about his valuable railway stocks. It sounded like he'd even got his cash box out and was showing her the certificates. After that, the landlady said that Mrs. Manning reappeared one more time on the 9th of August when O'Connor was not around. The landlady wasn't initially suspicious to see her entering his flat because she'd been such a regular guest until then. She had assumed that O'Connor had simply lent her his key. But when the landlady later saw Marie leaving with something tucked under her arm, she did wonder what she was carrying. Could it have been the cash box full of stocks and share certificates? Considering that O'Connor was reported missing soon afterwards, and then subsequently turned up dead in her kitchen, it seems obvious to Superintendent Haynes that Marie Manning is as guilty as sin. But of what? Just theft? Or was she also a murderess? The next person the police interview is one of O'Connor's closest drinking companions, a man named Pierce Walsh. Walsh is able to provide them with a much clearer picture of the victim's relationship with Mrs. Manning. Supposedly, the deceased had spoken of it with great pride. O'Connor had explained to his friend how he had first met Marie three years earlier during a boat trip to Boulogne, France. Back then, she'd been called Marie de Roux and was from Lausanne in Switzerland. At 25, she was almost half O'Connor's age, still unmarried. And working as a maid to Lady Blantyre of Stafford House in Bloomsbury, whom she was accompanying abroad. O'Connor was immediately struck by Derues' dark, attractive looks, as well as her beguiling Swiss accent. When they both returned to London, O'Connor set about courting Marie, regularly taking her out to extravagant restaurant dinners. The way O'Connor told it, the attraction had been mutual. Marie had very much encouraged these advances from a wealthy older man. But when he eventually proposed marriage, she revealed that he was not her only admirer. Frederick Manning was a 30-year-old railway guard who had also made Marie a marriage proposal around the same time. Although not as wealthy as O'Connor, he was much closer to her own age and of course had his own teeth. What's more, Manning had told Marie that he stood to inherit a fortune from his mother, making him the richer of her two suitors. It seems that this was enough information for Marie to make her choice. When Marie married Manning in May 1847, it broke O'Connor's heart, and they did not see each other for two years. However, in recent months, O'Connor had drunkenly boasted to Walsh that he had rekindled his romance with a beautiful Marie. Apparently, she had sought him out to complain to him about Manning. He'd been lying about his inheritance and admitting that she should have chosen O'Connor in the first place. When Walsh heard that his friend was involved with a married woman, he advised caution. But O'Connor dismissed his concerns, explaining that he'd befriended Frederick Manning, who seemed to understand the arrangement. In fact, he'd been invited to their Bermondsey home for a social visit on that very night, To prove to his friend that he enjoyed a good relationship with both the Mannings, O'Connor invited Pierce Walsh to accompany him to three Miniver Place. Walsh describes a strange evening to the police officers. He said that when they arrived, the Mannings seemed unhappy that O'Connor had brought along an unexpected guest. The four of them sat in awkward silence for a spell before O'Connor and Mr. Manning lit up their pipes and began conversing in a friendly manner. Mrs. Manning was indeed as beautiful as Walsh had been told, but she seemed highly agitated. She angrily confronted O'Connor as to why he had not come alone and insisted on speaking to him privately. Within Walsh's hearing, she had implored him to visit again on the following night and that this time he should come alone. Walsh tells the officers that this was on the 8th of August, the night before O'Connor went missing. After Walsh leaves the police station, the officers discuss what they have learned from his account. It seems likely that the Mannings had set a trap for O'Connor on the 8th, one that was scuppered when he arrived with another man. Marie Manning had cajoled him back to their home on the following night, which is when he was most likely killed. But what was their reason for committing murder? Was it simply to get him out of the way so they could steal his share certificates? Or was this indeed a crime of passion? Had O'Connor fallen victim to a jealous husband? Regardless of their motive, the police soon received damning testimony that Frederick Manning was planning to commit murder. They interview a young man named William Massey. Massey's a medical student who, until very recently, lived with the Mannings in Miniver Place as their lodger. Massey tells the officers of a strange incident that took place a short time before the murder. He describes how on one particular evening, Frederick Manning had knocked on the door of his room and entered in a state of obvious inebriation. He bombarded the medical student with questions about the effects of laudanum and chloroform. First, he wanted to know if either of the drugs could induce enough stupefaction so that a man might put pen to paper and sign over his money to someone else. Massey had answered that he had indeed heard of such drugs being used for bad purposes. Manning then asked more unsettling questions. What part of the skull is the most tender? Do air guns make any noise? And more to himself than to his tenant. Do murderers go to heaven?
2: Of all the mysteries in the world, perhaps the greatest is, when will it all end? Or rather, how? Hi listeners, it's Richard and Molly from the Spotify original from Parcast, Unexplained Mysteries.
1: With the end of the year approaching, Unexplained Mysteries is taking a closer look at some of the most infamous end-of-the-world scenarios in a five-part Doomsday Special you do not want to miss.
2: Throughout the month of December, discover the many ways people have prophesized our demise, from a religious apocalypse and an alien invasion, to threats from space and nuclear warfare. We'll even explore how advancements in technology could be our undoing.
1: Do any of us have anything to truly be scared of? Therein lies the mystery. Listen to The Unexplained Mysteries five-part doomsday special, free and only on Spotify.
0: At the time, the young student had dismissed these sinister questions as having been the result of Manning having drunk too much of the brandy he could still smell on his breath. But, he tells the officers, days later, both the Mannings abruptly insisted that Massey leave their home immediately, with no explanation given. William Massey did as they asked, vacating Miniver Place on the 8th of August, one day before O'Connor went missing. Hearing this, it seems obvious to the detectives that the Mannings were clearing the stage for murder. By now, nobody at Scotland Yard has any doubts that Frederick Manning is responsible for having brutally murdered O'Connor in a premeditated attack. They've even learnt that he had a shovel and a large bushel of quicklime delivered to his address in the weeks leading up to the murder. Not only that, but a local shopkeeper has claimed that Manning purchased a heavy crowbar from him in late July. Surely this must be the blunt instrument to cause the devastating wounds to the victim's head. But the policemen asked themselves, does Marie Manning also have blood on her hands? For some of these officers, the idea that a woman could have committed such a violent act is absurd they can only imagine that she aided and abetted at her husband's command, perhaps even against her will. But Superintendent Haynes isn't interested in whether or not Marie was pressured into murder by Frederick or not. It is for the courts to decide exactly what the Mannings might be guilty of and how they might be punished. The job of a police officer, Haynes knows, is merely to catch the wanted fugitives before they vanish forever. Fortunately for Haynes, a new cutting-edge piece of technology is set to make the hunt for the Mannings a lot easier. Invented 11 years earlier by the Americans Samuel Morse and Alfred Vail, the electric telegraph is a pioneering new form of communication. Previously, the police would have had to rely on horseback and trains to deliver their mail across the various divisions of Scotland Yard, a slow process that often afforded wanted criminals plenty of time to make good their escape. But by now, there is at least one Telegraph Office installed in every major police station, not just in London, but across the country. The detectives of M Division employ the Telegraph's text messaging system to provide other police stations with an almost instantaneous and accurate description of both Frederick and Marie Manning. They also contact every bank and stockbroker's office in the land, providing details of the missing share certificates. With this new innovation, Haynes hopes that it won't be long until they catch a scent of the missing Mannings. Because the nature of the crime is so gruesome, the so-called Bermondsey horror immediately captures the public imagination. Every national newspaper reports on the story, often in lurid detail. And Marie, especially, is painted in a chilling light. For many readers, she appears like a figure from the pages of gothic fiction, a mysterious, dark-haired foreign servant who worked in an aristocratic house and has since conspired with her brutish husband to murder her lover. Sightings of her begin to pour in, some of them more reliable than others, one newspaper claims that the Mannings have been seen setting sail for New York, although this turns out to be entirely uncorroborated. But although some of the reported sightings lead them nowhere, the police diligently follow every possible lead. Until, eventually, they receive one that provides their first real clue as to the whereabouts of Marie Manning. It's August the 21st, outside Southwark police station just one day after the appeal for help to catch Frederick and Marie Manning was published. A handsome cab draws up, driven by a man named William Kirk. After tying up his horses, Kirk removes his hat, walks into the station and asks to speak to someone concerning the Bermondsey murder. Superintendent Haynes interviews Kirk himself. He finds the coachman to be a serious man, precise about details, and quickly realizes that this is a very credible witness. Kirk claims that around 4 p.m. on the 13th of August, the day after O'Connor was reported missing, a young woman wearing black satin approached his coach stand. In a foreign accent, she engaged him to take her first to her home in Miniver Place. There, Kirk assisted his passenger by loading two large boxes and some smaller items of luggage onto his carriage. Then, at her request, he drove her to the nearby train station at London Bridge. But rather than catch a train, the lady instead deposited one of her boxes with a porter. The coachman even saw her write on a small card before attaching it to the box, but he could not read what it said. Then, the lady asked Kirk to take her to Kings Cross Railway Station where she alighted with the rest of her luggage to catch a train. She seemed highly agitated throughout the journey, the coachman tells Haines, but they did converse and she told him that she was traveling to Scotland. Wasting no time, Haynes and several other officers immediately race to London Bridge station. Haines demands to speak to anyone who was working there on the 13th who might have spoken to a woman with a European accent wearing a black satin dress. One porter instantly remembers the woman. He confirms that she left a large box with him and escorts Haynes to the cloakroom where it is still waiting. Weighing the light box in his hands, Haynes assumes that it must only contain clothing. There is a card attached and written on it in an elegant and feminine hand are the words, Mrs. Smith, passenger to Paris, to be left till called for. Fairly certain that Mrs. Smith must be an alias for Marie Manning, Haynes unties the cord around the box. Then he orders one of his officers to break open the lock. As he suspected, the inside is full of female clothing. For a brief moment, Haines loses confidence, fearing that he has made a mistake and that these garments do indeed belong to a real Mrs. Smith. But then he pulls out one of the gowns There are crimson stains all along the skirt of it, and it appears that someone has tried to wash the blood out. So if the woman in the black satin dress proves to be Marie Manning, she was at least present at O'Connor's murder. Haynes replaces the gown back in the box, orders for it to be taken as evidence, and races to King's Cross, where Marie had caught her train. Again, the station porters support William Kirk's story, they remember an attractive, yet nervous woman who spoke both English and French. She purchased a first-class ticket under the name of Smith for the train to Edinburgh. Then, presumably having stayed overnight in a nearby hotel, she boarded a train alone at 6.15 the following morning. Fired up by this lead, Haynes rushes back to the station, bursts into the telegraph office and dictates a message to the machine operator. His message is for the central Edinburgh police station alerting them that he believes a murderess arrived in their city last week. His words are then translated into Morse code and sent electronically via wires held up by utility poles across a series of telegraph stations heading northwards up the country. Marie Manning may have an eight day head start, but within a very short time, the detectives in Scotland are provided with every detail that they might need to catch her. However, the message turns out to be unnecessary. Even before the transmission reaches them, the Edinburgh police have learnt that the notorious Marie Manning is in town. On the same day that the coachman told Haynes about Marie's destination, the Scottish police made their own breakthrough in the case. In Edinburgh, Superintendent Richard Moxie is informed that a local stockbroker named Dobson believes he has spoken to the wanted woman, and he even knows where she's staying. Dobson claims that a seemingly respectable lady, calling herself Mrs. Smith, had visited his offices earlier that week. In what he heard as a French accent, she told him that her husband would be joining her in Scotland shortly and asked if he would help sell off some railway shares for them. Initially delighted to help, Dobson became suspicious of Mrs. Smith when she told him her father was from Glasgow, a thick accent suggested otherwise. Dobson took her details anyway, including the address of the hotel she was currently residing in. He couldn't help but notice how keen she appeared to be to sell her shares as quickly as possible. She was obviously desperate for funds. Two days later, his office received a telegraph from Scotland Yard asking brokers to keep an eye out for some stolen shares relating to the well-publicized murder. Dobson instantly realized that these were the same items that his female client wanted to sell, and that therefore his Mrs. Smith might in fact be the notorious Marie Manning. Accompanied by a police officer, Superintendent Moxie takes Dobson directly to the luxury hotel in the port town of Leith that Marie gave as her forwarding address. The Seaside Hotel is a high-class place, typically frequented by Leith's wealthiest visitors. Having been informed about her background as a servant to aristocrats, it occurs to Moxie that she is using stolen money to experience the sort of lifestyle that would have been enjoyed by her previous employer, Lady Blantyre. Before reaching a hotel room door, Moxie tells the stockbroker to wait briefly out of sight. Then he knocks. Mrs. Smith, I presume he says as a woman opens the door. In a polite but guarded manner, the pretty young woman answers his questions about her business in Edinburgh. She says her husband is dead, contradicting what she told Dobson. Moxie then asks if she is in possession of any railway shares. No, she replies with a steady gaze. At that moment, Moxie asks for Dobson to join them at the door. The stockbroker immediately identifies the startled woman as the same person who tried to sell shares through him earlier that week. Moxie steps through the door before she can make any objection. My impression is that you are the wife of Frederick Manning, he announces, before ordering his officer to search the room for the shares. Sure enough, 10 of the reported stolen certificates are found inside her trunk, as well as some bills made out for the name of Manning. His suspicions confirmed Superintendent Moxie turns back to Marie and charges her with the murder of Mr. Patrick O'Connor. In a convincing display of shock, she raises her hands to her face. Murder O'Connor, she cries. No, he was the kindest friend I had in the world. Confessing her true identity, but still protesting her innocence, Marie tells the police that it was her husband who committed murder, not her. And Fred had threatened to cut off her head with a knife, she declares, if she hadn't tried to help him evade capture for it. And where is Mr. Manning now? Moxie asks. Marie shakes her head, claiming that she fled London specifically to get away from him. The news of Marie's arrest in Edinburgh travels quickly back to London, where it is met with huge excitement by the journalists of Fleet Street. Many of the resulting newspaper illustrations depict Marie in black satin clothing. On the 24th of August, Superintendent Moxie personally escorts Marie back down to London, taking her straight to the police station in Southwark. There, Marie faces a rigorous interrogation from the officers of M division, who show her the blood-stained garment they found in London Bridge station. But rather than confess, Marie just stares defiantly back at them and continues to blame her husband who still remains at large. While Marie is detained in Horsemonger Lane Jail, the whereabouts of Frederick Manning become a national obsession. As an ordinary-looking 30-year-old man with a southern English accent, Frederick is able to disappear with greater ease than his striking Swiss wife was able to. However, Less than one week after Scotland Yard detectives had been informed of Marie's capture, their telegraph office receives another communication. Reliable sighting of Frederick has been reported on the island of Jersey. A former acquaintance of Manning has spotted him getting drunk on brandy in various taverns near the St Helier parish. Some years earlier, Manning had been questioned by the police in connection with a robbery of a post office train in the railway station where he worked. Although there had not been enough evidence to charge him with the crime, Manning had made an impression on one officer, a Sergeant Langley. Now, as one of the few officers who can identify Manning on site, Langley of the Yard is sent by boat to the Channel Island. And if it is indeed Manning who has been sighted there, to make the arrest. Once in St. Helia, Langley reports to the local constabulary, asking them where this brandy-drinking stranger might be found. But it seems that he has already fled the vicinity and Langley fears that Manning has somehow received word that the police were coming. However, the Jersey police soon learn that their man has traveled further up the coast to a discreet hotel in St. Lawrence. Langley and another officer head straight there. The hotelier informs them That there is a particularly ill tempered guest who remains in his room all day drinking himself insensible. Before approaching the room, Langley reminds his fellow officer that if this is their fugitive, then he is an extremely dangerous man. Unlike his wife, who was never likely to offer any physical resistance on arrest, Frederick might not come so peacefully. And so a stronger, more persuasive approach is adopted. Forcing the door open, the two officers stride into the room unannounced. They find the man unconscious in his bed with an empty bottle of brandy lying beside him. Langley is pleased to confirm that the slumbering man is indeed Frederick Manning. Shaking him awake, Langley reintroduces himself to the disorientated Manning and tells him he's under arrest. Groggily rising from his bed and offering no resistance, Manning rubs his eyes, and even appears a little relieved that the hunt for him is over. Finally, meeting Langley's eye and speaking in a raw voice, Manning asks him a question. Is the wretch taken? Langley replies that if he's referring to his wife, then yes, Mrs. Manning is also in custody. Manning sighs and tells the sergeant that the murder was all Marie's idea. She had discovered her lover O'Connor had a fortune in stocks, lured him to their house for dinner, and then shot him in the back of the head with a pistol. Her motive, he claims, was only ever the money. He knew he kept the keys to both his lodgings and cash box about his person, and so reasoned she would have to kill first to safely obtain them. Although the crime was premeditated by both of them, Manning then surprises Langley by admitting that he played his part in the murder for an entirely different reason. I never liked him, he says, so I battered his head in with a ripping chisel. Despite having fled to Edinburgh and Jersey respectively, Marie and Frederick are both arrested less than two weeks after O'Connor's body was discovered. Thanks to their employment of the newest communication technology, as well as a successful public appeal, the detectives of Scotland Yard have both of the Mannings imprisoned in separate cells in Horsemonger Lane. However, the public fascination with the married murderers doesn't end there. Ahead of their trial, the newspapers continue to cover every emerging detail about the Bermondsey horror. In prison, Marie seems particularly preoccupied with how she's being depicted in the press. The guards show her certain illustrations of her wearing a black satin dress. Rather than try to discourage the gothic image this evokes, Marie instead leans into it, requesting to wear exactly the same outfit for a trial appearance. On the 25th of October, Frederick and Marie are reunited at the Old Bailey, where they both stand trial for the murder of Patrick O'Connor and for the theft of his railway share certificates and other valuables. Because the trial is so widely publicized, tickets for the gallery have been sold and the courthouse is packed with spectators. The Mannings have separate lawyers, and they both attempt to blame the other for the crime. And yet neither manages to successfully convince the court. The weight of both witness testimony and the physical evidence against them is simply too great. After a two-day trial, Frederick Manning is found guilty of murder. Marie, meanwhile, is found guilty only of aiding and abetting, as there's nothing to support her husband's claim that she was the one who fired the gun. But the distinction makes no difference anyway. Marie is sentenced to death along with her husband. It's the early morning of Tuesday, November the 13th, 1849. A swelling crowd of between 30,000 to 50,000 Londoners waits impatiently outside Horsemonger Lane jail, filling every available space and crushing each other as they jostle. These rowdy spectators have gathered to witness the execution of the two most famous murderers of recent times. Above the flat roof, above the main gates of the prison, two nooses hang from the gallows. One for Frederick Manning, the other for Marie. First Frederick appears on the roof, escorted by two guards holding him steady. As the crowd jeers at him, Frederick visibly trembles. Walking up the scaffold towards the fatal rope, he repeatedly falls to his knees. But soon the guards have him in position, his head inside the noose. When Marie emerges from within the prison, the crowd goes even wilder, despite her not being the one who was convicted of murder. And yet her demeanor contrasts sharply with that of her husband. Although her face is concealed behind a thick black veil, her head is held high, and her footsteps much steadier. Some of the witnesses claim that once the Mannings are in place, Marie leans over and kisses her husband on the cheek. And then, minutes later, traps fall beneath their feet. Frederick is said to have died instantly, while Marie writhes around for a few moments. As is customary, their bodies are left to dangle there for an hour to ensure their deaths. Then they're taken away for burial in the prison graveyard. From a rooftop across the street from the prison, the 38-year-old novelist, Charles Dickens, is sickened by what he has just witnessed. Dickens has been taking an interest in the Bermondsey horror ever since it was first reported and attended the trial at the Old Bailey. But today, it is not the criminals who appall him, but instead the barbaric behavior Of the mob of spectators. Angry with what he describes as their wickedness and levity, Dickens writes a letter to the Times in which he decries the continued practice, public executions. From that day forward, he will start a campaign to have such public executions outlawed. But despite his efforts, public executions will not be outlawed for another 19 years. Until then, the general public will go on treating capital punishment as a form of entertainment. But this isn't the only impact the Mannings have over the work of Charles Dickens. In his book, Bleak House, often credited as being one of English literature's first ever detective stories, the killer is revealed as being Mademoiselle Hortense, a young French maid to an aristocratic lady who kills for money. To this day, Literary historians believe that this fictional murderess was inspired by the infamous Marie. And her cultural legacy even extended into the world of fashion. Her signature style of black satin dress became so well associated with her that over the following years, it went completely out of style. It seems unsurprising that no respectable lady would want to be associated with one of the most notorious killers of the Victorian age. Next week on Scotland Yard Confidential. In 1913, the most valuable pearl necklace in the world suddenly goes missing. Scotland Yard put their best man on the job, Chief Inspector Alfred Ward. Ward is an expert in tracking down jewel thieves, but the man he's hunting this time is no ordinary criminal. What follows becomes one of the most notorious investigations in Scotland Yard's history. In a relentless game of cat and mouse, a brilliant detective is pitted against a master thief, both at the top of their game. The investigation into the Pearl Heist will ultimately shape both of their careers, defining one and destroying the other. Scotland Yard Confidential is a Spotify original from Parcast produced in partnership with Noize. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boiro for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Series consultant Roger Morris. Written by James Benmore. Hosted by me, John Hopkins. Supervising editor Kevin Pham. Sound design by Matthias Torres-Sole. Sound supervisor Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mix master by Jacob Booth. Music by Oliver Bain. Dorry McCauley
1: An Alien Invasion Nuclear Warfare The Second Coming. How will the world end? Will we be prepared? And will it matter? This December, join Unexplained Mysteries for a five-part Doomsday Special examining the many theories about humanity's ultimate demise.
2: We're counting down to the end of the year with the most infamous end-of-the-world scenarios of all time. Listen to the Unexplained Mysteries five-part Doomsday Special, free and only on Spotify.